Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Daniel Fleming to talk about his new book, Living the Dream, The Contested History of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is out now from the University of North Carolina Press. Daniel is a lecturer at the University of New South Wales in Australia and an honorary postdoctoral fellow at Macquarie University. His book tells the history behind the establishment of King Day and the continuing battle over King's legacy. It reveals the lengths that activists had to go to in order to elevate King to the pantheon of American heroes, how conservatives took advantage of the commemoration to reframe King's legacy, and how grassroots causes, unions, and anti-war demonstrators continue to try and claim this day as their own. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing today? Uh, good, thanks. I'm really excited and looking forward to, to talking about your new book. Let's just start off with the basics. So the Martin Luther King holiday you know, how did how did this happen? How did you end up writing a book on this topic? Well, the first inclination that I was interested in the topic, I suppose, was when I was writing my master's degree on Martin Luther King and the FBI. And my third chapter was about the FBI efforts to discredit King even after he had died. The FBI discuss you know, the potential of a a holiday in honour of King as this kind of national calamity. And I was really intrigued by that. So that that kind of led to my interest in the King holiday. So when it came to writing a PhD, that's where the kind of idea germinated. Moving from the PhD to the book, was there much that changed? You know, did the the format of it change or did you maybe add chapters? It changed fairly significantly in that I added an extra chapter to bring it right up to the present. I think the other thing was that during the time between sort of submitting the PhD thesis and then, you know, writing the book or finishing the manuscript, the Black Lives Matter movement really, really took off. You know, and, and, and also the attack on the Confederate memorials in the South. And that really, I suppose, put a whole a different importance, I think, on on the book. So I was able to talk, I think, a little bit more meaningfully about memorials and their importance. I think in some ways it was a bit more abstract to me until you know, that period between 2015 and 2020, but especially 2020. And this has an impact on the King holiday as well, uh, what Black Lives Matter does in 2015, uh, where the activists really, really use, uh, they challenge, you know, what they think is the passiveness of the holiday. They really challenge it in 2015. The longer it took me to write it, the more kind of contemporary and relevant it became. 
And so a lot of the book, you know, the content didn't necessarily change, you know, from the chapters sort of one to six. But I feel like my analysis of what it all meant changed and it evolved. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, one of the, I think, really important arguments your book makes, and and we'll get into it more, is um, historians have a tendency to focus a lot on the struggle to get the holiday made in terms of it being recognized federally in the 1980s Um, but then there's actually a lot less emphasis or or interest in how the holiday evolves subsequently and there's almost a parallel there between that evolution of the king holiday the idea of the king holiday is like a living text and then your experience in in writing this book you know the kind of way in which the holiday is uh, experienced or contested um, continues to to, to shift. I mean, how much of a challenge was that to be on this, almost this uh, this moving treadmill as, as you're trying to finish the book? It was a challenge, but it was also very invigorating. Uh, it made the process seem more current and contemporary because originally my thesis finished chronologically um, it sort of finished around 2000. There was a bit at the end, you know, where like an epilogue where I had sort of nodded to the events of 2015. But I think we all want to write for an audience, a contemporary audience. I mean, we have to. And that was, in a way, the way that I was able to bridge, you know, try and connect it all together. Yeah, definitely that process of, of reworking can can help bring out like the immediacy of, of our arguments. Um, and also, I think there's a question about positionality here. Listeners, on the basis of accents, can probably tell we aren't American. Um, and then we're, we're both white scholars who, who are working on African-American history. How did you grapple with that? Or how did you think about your own positionality in terms of, of writing this history? So I thought about it a lot and I guess my first point of interest is Martin Luther King and to me I was most interested initially in his nonviolence. I'm very interested in revolutions, revolutionary figures and he strikes me as fascinating. You know, I, I think he's a universal figure so that is, um, he he will be studied by people all around the world. What I hoped to do was just use the best of my training as a historian, as a student of history, as I've been taught, to write about him, keeping in mind that what I say, what I write, is one version of what could be written. So I originally entitled the book had a subtitle, A History of the Martin Luther King Holiday. And I intentionally had it as a history because I was aware that there could be, indeed there are other histories, other sort of interpretations. Now, the publishers and I talked about various titles and they wanted something, I suppose, a little sort of punchier. So I suggested the contested history, and I think that that still uh, encompasses that idea that, that, that there's more than one history, that there are other versions that can be written, and I think that that was what I tried to do. Let's get into the, the book itself. Can you just map out 
from you know the moment of King's death to Reagan signing the legislation that, that formalizes federal recognition for the King holiday in the 80s. What does that look like? So the first move towards the King holiday comes from John Conyers in uh, Congress. So he's a representative from Detroit. And even before the funeral of Martin Luther King, Conyers passes a motion or he he raises the issue in Congress to have a national holiday in honour of King. And he raises this every year from 1968 to 1983, basically. And uh, most often it's just reported to committee, but it it does go to the House in 1979 and there is a vote which, for various reasons, doesn't sort of result in the the holiday being created then. But Coretta Scott King gives her kind of approval. Ralph Abernathy from the SCLC, he gets on board as well. And by the early 1970s, they've they, you know, they have a, a petition that is 3 million signatures strong and that goes to Congress. So there's quite a groundswell early on. You know, I think it's a way of dealing with the loss, the grief of losing such a charismatic and popular leader. And I, I tried to uh, emphasise this in the book as well as many other things, that one of the ideas is to help keep King's dream alive and to also keep the movement going as well. Progressively over time, certain cities will declare a King holiday, uh, schools might declare a King holiday, local areas, uh, states, for example, will. But it's all very haphazard. There is a, um, a lobby group set up and people like a man called Howard Bennett, I think he's with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters or the, he's, a, he's a labour activist, but he's, he's involved. Congressional Black Caucus get involved. It's one of the first things that they're interested in. In 1979, it does come to a vote in the House of Representatives Uh, But that fails because the King holiday proponents are very adamant that the holiday should be on either King's birthday, which is the 15th of January, or on the closest Monday, which has become the custom after 1968. Most American holidays occur on a Monday. And initially the House, the majority in the House says, yes, we'll have a holiday on a Monday. But then there's an amendment that pushes the vote and the majority then vote for a holiday on a Sunday, which means it's not really a public national federal holiday. It's just a a commemorative occasion. Public servants don't get the, the day off. The election of Ronald Reagan, I think, changes things because he is seen as opposed to the civil rights movement And, you know, there are large demonstrations about a whole range of issues um, when he comes to power. And included in that, those demonstrations is a desire for a King holiday. And there is, um, in 1983, a kind of anniversary march of the March on Washington. And the King holiday is really one of the most prominent features of that. So there's quite a big um, momentum for a holiday by 1983. 
and Congress votes on it and in the House, even like people like Newt Gingrich get behind the idea after sort of a fair bit of persuasion and then it goes to the Senate where Jesse Helms kind of makes an infamous sort of last stand against the holiday. And the Senate, which was at that point, I think, dominated by Republicans, they vote for the holiday. That is kind of the the, the push for the holiday. And it's a groundswell as, as well, as I mentioned. Black Americans are already celebrating the holiday and they are making it a... as. Um, I think it's William O. Wiggins says it's sort of a de facto holiday. Um, it's already a holiday for some people. So Reagan, Ronald Reagan finally signs this uh, piece of legislation and then the, the first king holiday is going to take place, first federally recognised king holiday is going to take place a couple of years after that. And the body that's in charge of, of basically organising this is this commission, right, this, this king commission. And this is what your second chapter really focuses on. Who's part of this commission? What's its remit? How does it try and frame this this first celebration? So the idea for a commission uh, seems to have come from a man called Lloyd Davis, who was a housing and urban development employee who had been seconded kind of to the King Centre um, and worked very closely with Coretta Scott King. And Coretta Scott King's experience, as you well know, well, she's always been an activist in her own right, but in the 1970s she campaigns for full employment with the Humphrey Hawkins uh, Employment Bill. And, you know, she kind of comes to the realisation that the bill will never live up to its potential, in part, I think, because the political will is not certainly not there from some of the major players, but also because there is no body, no organisation to ensure that its targets are met. And so once the holiday is created, there's this need to make sure that it just doesn't drop off the calendar. They have to make the holiday relevant. They have to make it appeal to the, you know, the majority of Americans. And The idea of setting up a commission is the way that they decide that they're going to monitor the holiday and have a uniform kind of standard of observation around the country. And so that is to do with local festivals and the like. So Katie Hall, who was a representative in Congress, she put forward a motion to create the Holiday Commission. And actually, Katie was the Katie Hall was the one who introduced the final legislation that, that made the holiday. So she becomes an important player at this point. What's in, interesting about the commission is that it's legislated to exist for one year. It will receive no funding. And it's kind of like an offshoot of the King Centre in Atlanta, except that uh, it has commissioners and they are appointed, you know, from all kind of walks of life. But what I found was that uh, the Reagan administration got to pick four commissioners. So the, the House got to pick four commissioners, the Senate got to pick four, Reagan got to pick four Now, Reagan appoints four uh, African-American conservatives to the commission, and I think this really demonstrates the tone with which the, you know, early holiday 
is celebrated. They're very keen to um, to not have um, a too radical a flavour on the commission, and um, and Corinna has to work with that, and was very much interested in engaging adversaries like people who may not necessarily uh, share her worldview. She um, she would work with most people, you know, in the interests of furthering the philosophy of kind of racial equality and nonviolence. One thing that you, you do know is that at least initially you don't really see many of those uh, legacy activists who maybe knew King or organised with King directly. Um, but then after a, a couple of years, people like Ralph Abernathy do start to filter into the commission. Does that change what it's trying to do? Or, or how do those maybe more activist-oriented commissioners work alongside some of these more moderate or conservative voices? Yeah, so Ralph... Abernathy is left off the commission in 1986 and he's very upset about it. What happens is the commission is extended. So initially it only has a one-year lifespan. It's extended again. I think it gets a three-year extension initially, but still no funding because they have to demonstrate, you know, they're not going to be a drain on the public purse. So Ralph Abernathy comes in and several other activists as well. I grappled with this quite a bit, like how much difference do they make? I think they make a difference in terms of the appearance of the commission. Like in 1987, Abernathy's in the parade. I mean, in 1986, Ralph Abernathy was in Alaska. (laughs) That's where he spent the first King holiday. It's kind of extraordinary. But in 1987, he's there. He's in the parade. What I think he does, in a sense, is give more of an endorsement to the activist spirit. But, you know, a lot of it is symbolic. But behind the scenes, there are discussions in, you know, after the first King holiday. And so when people like Abernathy are appointed, um, the commission does make an effort to say, you know, this is more representative of, you know, King's activist uh, spirit. What I think it just points to is the tension between having an activist holiday and a and a popular holiday. It's interesting to see how these individualised contestations within the commission kind of get borne out more broadly in American society, how people are beginning to engage with, with holiday and interact with the holiday. A little bit earlier on there as well, you, you mentioned Coretta and, and Coretta being really quite strategic in, in the fights that she tries to pick about the holiday and, and the, the relationships that she, she tries to cultivate with people who, who certainly don't share her worldview. And one person who she develops a really interesting relationship with is George Bush, who obviously succeeds Reagan in the presidency. Can you say a little bit more about that relationship? Yeah, so Coretta always has her one eye on the big picture. And for her, that is transforming the country into a non-violent society. Now, with George uh, Bush Sr., the holiday for him always seemed to be a way for him just to put a bit of distance between himself and Ronald Reagan. The rumour was that he would have appeared in his capacity as vice president in the Senate if a tiebreak was needed 
to create the king holiday in that final vote. So he he let it be known that he would he would do that. It didn't come to that, of course. So you know we'll never know if that would have been the case. He opens the commission's Washington D.C. office, and when he becomes the president, he encourages the renewal of the commission for another three years, but also. Uh, helps to facilitate some funding for the commission as well. What's really interesting is that Lee Atwater is invited onto the commission as well uh, at Coretta's instigation. And Coretta did attend the Republican campaign launch or the National Convention in 1988 to see Bush be nominated Now, she didn't endorse Bush, but she didn't go to the Democratic Convention. And this is a real break for Coretta because she has been lobbying for progressive uh, candidates and Democratic Party candidates uh, for a long time, particularly through the 1970s. But part of the message to Democrats was don't take us for granted. And with Coretta, there's a bit of that in her alliance with George Bush. Now, it doesn't really last. You know, she never endorses Bush, but she can see that he's willing to distinguish himself a bit from Reagan by supporting King's legacy. It's fair to say that um, she welcomed the Bill Clinton, uh, the election of Bill Clinton. I think she saw that as ultimately a bigger opportunity. We're getting a sense of how, you know, these different political leaders, and in particular the president, is co-opting or utilising the King holiday for specific political um, prerogatives. And then Clinton, when when Bill Clinton is elected, you describe at least the, this first stage of the Clinton presidency as being unique in the King holiday's history. So what exactly is Clinton trying to do, like, how does he envision the holiday? So by 1992, there's quite a bit of dissatisfaction with the King holiday. It's been promoted with the slogan, Living the Dream, and that's where I get the title for the book. And so much of the early emphasis in the holiday was that of celebration. But at the same time, Reagan is pushing a kind of a colorblind politics where he's attacking affirmative action and these sort of programs that the civil rights movement had fought for to redress inequality. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction. And his argument is that, well, Martin Luther King was successful. In fact, he was so successful, we don't need anti-discrimination measures anymore. And this is where a lot of, you know, activists, people like Jesse Jackson, Julian Bond, these kinds of people, you know, are dissatisfied. Now, when Clinton comes to power, there is a push to reform the holiday to make it become a day of service. And they rely on, for inspiration, a speech that King gave on the 4th of February 1968, two months before his assassination. And he says that if you want to be great, all you have to do is serve. Put others before yourself. There is this idea that the holiday has to become more practical. It has to be orientated towards 
serving people, redressing problems like poverty, educational inequality, and things like that. There's a bit of a bipartisan agreement that community service is a good thing, but there are various kind of takes on it. So some people think that it should be organised by the government, you know, community service sponsored by the government. Other people like George Bush Sr. thought, you know, existing groups like church groups and things like that should be involved in community service. So Bill Clinton comes to power. This idea is gaining momentum and he thinks community service is also an alternative to military service. And this sort of this taps into Bill Clinton's baby boomer persona. Congress passes the, uh, a Community Service Act, which creates a AmeriCorps. And then on the back of that, the Clinton administration and its supporters in Congress passed the King Holiday and Service Act of 1994 to bring community service to the King Holiday so we've got these different political ideological fights over what the the holiday represents and as as you say you've got people like Coretta Scott King and other activists who are are trying to use it to stimulate activism um, to make it a more substantial holiday and then you know the Clinton administration is, is trying to do its own thing and then against this backdrop you also have the business interest in the King holiday and this has been something that's bubbling in the earlier chapters And it really comes to the forefront in chapter six, where you start talking about the intellectual property around the holiday um, and this idea of privatising King Day. Let's start with that phrase, like privatising King Day. What exactly do you mean by that? The Federal Holiday Commission is a government-funded agency. So the Clinton administration had started to, you know, tip in more money. I think it was getting in a funding of $500,000 a year. The King Holiday and Service Act of 1994 was a real triumph, um, both in terms of making the holiday relevant and securing the Commission's future financially. Now, what happens to the end of 1994, really only months after the Act has passed, Dexter Scott King, who is the third child of Martin and Coretta, he's not a child at this point, he's a grown man, he becomes the head of the King Centre. And basically all the sort of power of the King legacy is concentrated in his hands because Coretta Scott King, she's been at this for for a few decades and is starting to to kind of weary and is looking at... um, you know, retiring. The other siblings are not necessarily keen on doing what Dexter wants. Yolanda has an acting career. Um, Martin Luther King III has other interests. And Bernice, I don't, I think she's a bit younger at this point. Now, Dexter wants, in a sense, to privatise the legacy of Martin Luther King. And and the way he wants to do that is to use King's intellectual property. The idea is that he will restrict the use of King's intellectual property. So 
whereas previously, you know, television stations might have been able to broadcast, you know, large amounts of the I Have a Dream speech, he restricts that property via the King estate. So King copyrighted his speeches, or at least his lawyer, Clarence Jones, did the actual, you know, paperwork. So what it meant was that the legal right to reproduce the words and to give permission to that was with the King estate. Now, the family had been fairly um, open with with who could use the words up until around 1994, 1995. There is a legal case where King, Coretta Scott King, tries to get King's papers brought from Boston University down to Atlanta. The court decides in favour of Boston University and it sort of seems to mark a little bit of a shift in the thinking of, well, her, but mostly her son, Dexter. And so when he becomes the CEO of the King Centre, he sends a memo to Lloyd Davis, who is the the person who really runs the commission on a day-to-day level. And it says that you need to you you need permission to reproduce King's image on King Day. I mean, it's it's kind of extraordinary that this commission, which had been functioning quite harmoniously with from everything I can tell, is all of a sudden sort of said, you know, you need permission to use King's image. Now, you might think that that would just be a formality, but it it wasn't. It became a serious roadblock for the commission. And Lloyd Davis, as executive director, though he's not a commissioner, he has a powerful voice at the table. And Davis says, well, you know, if you don't give us permission to use King's image, well, we can't function. You know, there's kind of like no point. And within a few committing meetings, so not not the commission itself, but behind the scenes in sort of smaller committees, uh, there are discussions about, well, do we disband the commission? And eventually the committee says, well, we'll put that to the commission. And this, I think, is really pushed by Dexter because what he wants to do is restrict the use of King's image and his words so that he can charge a higher price for using those words. And he sees the commission, and this is where I get to the part about privatising the holiday, he sees the commission as competition. It is competition. And so eventually the committees decide, well, with Dexter's strong hostility and Coretta's desire to kind of step away, the commission agrees because without the support of Coretta or Dexter, the the commission is it's going to be a bit powerless. But this happens at the same time when the Republican revolution, the kind of Newt Gingrich-led Republican revolution happens in 1994. So what happens is eventually the commission is disbanded and it happens quite quite suddenly. It is really quite shocking even how quickly the commission just seems to disintegrate and obviously Dexter's own desires to, to maybe commercialise or privatise King's legacy have a big role in that. So then you describe this period of, of transition um, for the King holiday leading into the 21st century. So 
you know, what does that transition look like? And then what really, in your opinion, brings the holiday back into the public eye in a, in a significant way? When the commission folds, the organisation of the holiday is divided between the King Centre and the Corporation for National Community Service. So if we go back to that legislation that Congress passed to create AmeriCorps when uh, Clinton was first president, Clinton still, you know, he's still in his second term. He has the national... And, and, and so what happens is, in, I think it's in 1996, they have kind of the first day of service, but it's very kind of fledgling. It's not widespread. But in 1997, the day of service is up and up and running in a more wholehearted way. And they, they claim to sort of get half a million volunteers, you know, to, to be involved and there's favourable press coverage. But I think it's a really awkward transition. I mean, I think the, the folding of the commission, I think the suddenness meant that things got interrupted, like the day of service was not um, probably launched with as much coordination as it could have been. Uh, and so I, I kind of see, you know, the period after the fall of the commission to be a bit of a, a, a challenging time. Um, and, 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 you know, the Dex, Dexter's, you know, off trying to, you know, sell the papers and things like that. And the Olympic Games happens in Atlanta. That's another important point is that, you know, that's a marketing opportunity what I, and what I say in the book is that there's money being made, there's a lot of marketing happening, but there's no more in-depth reading of King's legacy per se. In fact, you know, Dexter wants to standardise King's legacy like Coca-Cola and just have it, you know, sold around the world as the same product all around the world. So in terms of memorialising King, in terms of understanding his legacy, um, this standardisation is sort of everything that the older civil rights activists were horrified by. That you know they thought that his legacy had much deeper kind of meaning. Now George Bush Jr. comes to power in two thousand, and I think the holiday is used uh, to protest against the war in Iraq in two thousand and three. But before that, what's interesting is Bush Jr., he uses the holiday after 9-11 to kind of bring Americans together. He releases a proclamation in which he sort of says that the, you know, the volunteers who were at the World Trade Centre were like the activists of um, the 1960s, devoting themselves selflessly to a higher good. And even, you know, members of the King family sort of say, you know, the ashes of 9-11 rendered us colourless or one, you know, one, one people. You know, I think George Bush uses the holiday, you know, fairly cynically. I mean, like you could say that about all the politicians, but in, I think there's quite a disconnect between King's message and Bush's policies, in, in, in particularly foreign policies, especially when the invasion of Iraq 
happens in 2003. And, and this is where the King holiday becomes uh, another forum for protest against sort of violence, militarism. Um, now, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, haven't found a lot of evidence that the King Centre is um, sponsoring, you know, protests against, against the war. Um, and certainly the Corporation for Community Service is not doing that. And so that's one thing about, you know, having the government sort of organising these service activities is it's a kind of moderating influence. One of the high points, I suppose, of the holiday in terms of it being a celebration was the inauguration of Barack Obama in 2008. You know, there's a massive concert the night before the King holiday. I think it's a Sunday Sunday night on the mall um, in Washington, D.C. Obama alludes to King in his speech, as he does in almost all of his major speeches, uh, and then the next day he's inaugurated. This kind of climax, I suppose, of Obama's whole campaign and then the early days of his presidency, the climax of his inauguration is people saying, oh, you know, this is King's dream come alive. And Obama plays along with that. I mean, he mentions King a lot. And, of course, being the first African-American president, it, it is really very symbolic. It was very hard even, you know, for me, and this is when I was starting to do my research on this topic, I was, it was almost impossible not to get swept up in the symbolism of it all. And this brings us back to uh, kind of what we started the conversation with, talking about the King holiday within the context of Black Lives Matter. One of the interesting things in your analysis of this is you're seeing criticisms of the King holiday, but for a lot of this period, primarily from conservative politicians, white Republicans. Now we start to see criticisms coming from you know younger generations of black activists so what exactly are these criticisms of the king holiday within the context of of black lives matter um, and how does that in your opinion shape or, or reshape public opinions or attitudes towards the holiday one of the things that the founders of the holiday wanted to do was always to impart to the new new generation, to the young, that the civil rights struggle took place, that it was a fight, that it had to happen. Now, what happens, and this is really notable in 2015 when Black Lives Matter, you know, really starts to take off, is that many of the young people that that older activists, you know, they feared that the young people wouldn't be sort of militant enough, um, turn out to be uh, quite, you know, quite the activists themselves. And they, they actually target the holiday. You know, they lay down on the road in the middle of uh, Peachtree Street in Atlanta. They block the parade. They're disruptive. They say, you know, we need to be in the streets. You know, and this is in response to events in Ferguson, Missouri, um, Baltimore, and a, a series of like high profile killings of black Americans. And 
you know, this is all happening during the first presidency of the first African-American president. So there's, you know, a kind of really heightened sense of activism and outrage and anger at what has been happening. And then, of course, the pushback, which is that, well, Martin Luther King would never have done this. He wouldn't have taken a highway. And Jean Thea Harris writes about this. Um, you know, he'd never take a highway. Um, he was, you know, he was a good activist. There's that real pushback um, against Black Lives Matter. But I think then the election of Donald Trump in 2016, which was so jolting to to many people, um, that, that, that then kept Black Lives Matter very kind of relevant, very uh, on the move, and particularly in 2019 and 2020 as well, where the whole kind of issue of, you know, how do we commemorate people in public life? You know, can we be content to have all these kind of Confederate uh, generals and politicians being memorialised when, you know, there's only a fraction of memorials to black people in America. And and there's also the debate about where do you situate statues? Um, the, the places of authority in America are your courthouse lawns, the, the grounds of state capitals, the malls and things like that. You know, a lot of civil rights memorials were put in areas that were where civil rights movement activities happened, but they were often in places, um, you know, in black communities. So the argument there against that is that they can be easily ignored, you know, so the, the Confederate memorials are in prominent positions, civil rights memorials, you know, are in places of relevance to the movement and the history of the movement, but, you know, you've got to go out of your way to, to see them. And this is part of the criticism this all, you know, flares up. This made me think about, again, going back to 1983 and, and the years from 1968 to 1983. Well, in some ways, the debate about the King holiday presaged these, the debate in 2020. Who should be memorialised? How should they be? Where should they be? How much prominence should they have? And... You know, what does, you know, what does it mean and what does it say about the values of the community and the society and the nation at large? And, you know, so this is when I spoke earlier about how the longer this went on, the more I had to sort of rethink even the earlier chapters I wrote that I previously was quite satisfied with. <laughs> I had to rethink them. And no doubt, you know, that process of rethinking will go on. And as I say, you know, I don't think this is the final word on the topic. And I hope, you know, there's more to be said. And I guess we'll just wait and see. Yeah, I think, again, you know, coming back to that idea of it being an ongoing conversation, and and this is just one of the really great strengths of your book, is that you do show very effectively, like, how the King holiday has, has continued to evolve and how the way that people receive it and engage with the holiday has continued to evolve. Thinking about where you might go next after this book, um, I don't know if you 
have uh, any projects that you're working on now that you want to preview for listeners or maybe things that you uh, you want to flag up uh, that you're working on that people can can look forward to in the future so i've got uh two projects in kind of the early stages i suppose one is i'm working with uh michael on darchi the historian on a project about black conservatives who opposed the civil rights movement uh, at the time in the 60s. And Michael was my PhD supervisor and he was the one um, influenced me to think about the position of black conservatives in the, you know, American political life. Like what role do they play? The other project I'm sort of working on is a project on uh, gun control. So how far I can go with that depends on, you know, funding and, and, and the ability to get to the States again and, and do more research. So, uh, but they're, 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 the, they're, the two, they're the two projects. Two great projects and um, really excited to see, see how they develop. But yeah, thanks again, Daniel. It's, it's been really great talking with you today. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me.